You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Okay, so we are getting toward the end of our study in Jeremiah. We've been in the book of Jeremiah all fall, and we've got uh, this week and next week left, and we'll wrap up our study of Jeremiah. Obviously, the book is, there's more to the book than what we'll cover, but uh, we've been looking at God's interaction with his people of old, the ancient Israelites, uh, in Jeremiah. And if you were with us last week, we looked at Jeremiah chapter 29. And we saw, we talked about this top line, bottom line thing that was happening, this thing that's going on in history where God's ancient people, the the Israelites, are taken captive. They're taken into Babylonian exile. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. King Nebuchadnezzar and his armies uh, raid Jerusalem, tear down the the temple. They overtake them. They win the battle. And they take the surviving uh, people of Judah into exile. But we also have seen Jeremiah has been warning God's people For years, we've been looking at his words, calling the people of God to return to God, to turn from their sin, from their spiritual apathy, from their idolatry, from their love of the surrounding culture, where they've become adulterous, where they've loved the world more than they've loved their God, their saving God. And they've ignored Jeremiah, they've refused God's appeals of grace, and so we know that what God is doing, it's been clear from Jeremiah's word, is that he is sending his people into a time of judgment. But as we saw at the end of Jeremiah chapter 29, there was, a, there was a promise of hope. There was a beautiful promise. Remember, God tells them to settle in, tells them to plant uh, gardens, build houses, have babies. He says, seek the good of the Babylonians. He tells them to seek God. And then I want to pick up where we left off. I want to look at this promise. I want to remind you of this promise that God made because it's important to our text today. Jeremiah chapter 29, I want to start by going back there and looking at verses 10 through 14. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. Here's the promise that God makes to these exiles. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to this place from which I sent you into exile. And so God reminds them, the story of Israel is not finished with Babylonian exile. The story of God's redemptive work in the world is not over with the victory of King Nebuchadnezzar. There is a future and a hope that he has promised. And as we pick up this morning in chapter 31, we are going to find a grace-drenched text. This promise of future and hope gets unpacked a bit in chapters 30 through 33. Um, A lot of scholars will call this the book of consolations. We see at the beginning of chapter 30 that God tells Jeremiah to write down this word. So chapter 29 was a letter to exiles telling them how they should live. Chapters 30 through 33 is a book that is in many ways unpacking this promise for them. I've been thinking about this all week, kind of the best way to help us capture chapter 31 as we look at it today. And the thing that's come to mind for me is that it's kind of like a movie trailer, 
right? So if, if we just looked at this amazing promise that is to come in chapter 29, what we get in chapter 31, what we'll look at today, is kind of like a movie trailer, right? What does a good movie trailer do? Well, it doesn't give you all the details. It doesn't tell you the whole story. It just gives you bits and pieces, images and sounds and, 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 and snippets and scenes to stir up your imagination, to get you excited about the release of the movie that's coming. In a lot of ways, that's what chapter 31 is like. We're going to get snippets and scenes and promises and little whispers here and there, not the full detail on exactly what God's going to do when he rescues them and when he restores them and when he brings them out of exile, but we get little snippets here and there. It's like a movie trailer, but it's more than a trailer for one movie. All right, hang with me. It's more than a trailer for one movie. Really, chapter 31 is like a movie trailer for a trilogy, okay? Think about the greatest trilogy of all time. I know what you're thinking, the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> no, um, close though, that's second. Um, Lord of the Rings, right? It's a, great, it's a tr- great trilogy, isn't it? Like each one of those parts could stand on their own, but they're telling a broader story and they deepen each other, they widen each other. And that's what's happening here in chapter 31. We're gonna see promises, previews, snippets of this trilogy of grace that God is promising not only to Judah, but to all of the world. And I wanna give you kind of each of those parts so that we can catch these promises as we work through the text. There's going to be some things that we're going to see in chapter 31 that are promises of grace that will be revealed and that are kept for Judah themselves. That when, they're, when they are rescued out of Babylonian captivity, there are some things that we're going to see here that are true in the part one of the trilogy of what God does among his, his people, of his Old Testament people. But there's going to be more. There's promises and whispers of grace for sinners in this text that are, go even beyond Judah, that are true in part two, that are true in Jesus and what God has done for the whole world in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus in the gospel. But there's even more in this text. There are snippets and promises and previews and scenes of promises of grace for sinners for act three, for part three, which is, we'll see the, when, when Jesus returns, the return of Christ. There's so much grace in this text. And so, What I want to do this morning is try and help us catch it. We're going to look at different parts of this passage, and we're going to see that there are four scenes of grace. Let's start by looking at verses 1 through 3. Start by looking Jeremiah 31, verses 1 through 3. At that time, declares the Lord, right? So he's talking about the time of their rescue, the time of his grace. Out of this season of judgment, there's a time of grace that's coming. At that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Let's stop for a moment. I want you to imagine with me the best you can being in exile, having been ripped away from your homeland, having watched your city and your temple destroyed. Uh, I want you to imagine with me the best you can what it might have been like experiencing all of this, being assimilated into Babylonian way of life, and then receiving this word from Jeremiah. Now, at this point, they've probably learned to trust what Jeremiah has to say, okay? 
Because Jeremiah has been telling them over and over again, and everything that he said to them that they've refused to listen to has now happened to them. And so they're probably ready and eager to receive this new word from Jeremiah. And imagine what that might have been like to hear this guy, Jeremiah, who's been giving warnings, and he's been saying, repent and turn, repent and turn. And now he brings this message of good news. You will find grace in your day of wilderness. This is a powerful message. What he's basically saying, the first scene of grace that we get, is that that God's grace is surprising. You will find surprising grace, he says. God gives some language to remind his people of his surprising love and his surprising grace that shows up to undeserving sinners. God's grace meets us in the wilderness. God's grace seeks us and restores our lives. God wants them to know that the same God who led Israel out of destruction in Egypt and into his grace in the wilderness is the same God who would lead them out of Babylonian captivity and into grace, amazing grace, restoring grace yet again. And verse 3 is clear. It's not because they have earned it, It's not because they will do what is necessary during this time of captivity to work their way back into God's good graces. That's not how it works with God. The God of the Bible, that's not how it works. We don't earn his love. Um, We don't uh, prove ourselves to him to show that we're sufficient for his grace. That's not how it works with him. It's all because of who he is and how he loves. The text tells us that he loves with an everlasting love, with a covenantal love. God will continue his faithfulness to his people despite their unfaithfulness. Surprising grace for sinners. And I think that there maybe are some of you here this morning who need to hear this word. You need to be reminded this morning of God's unchanging love, of God's covenantal love, of God's everlasting love. That while your sin does indeed grieve the heart of God, your sin will never, it can never change your status in God's eyes. That if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, you are simply and utterly loved. You're beloved and there's nothing that you can do about it. That's good news for us, isn't it? That's surprising grace for sinners like you and I. In fact, will you remember back to Jeremiah chapter 3, if you were with us uh, that Sunday when we looked at Jeremiah chapter 3, that was the week I said that the sermon was PG rated. Remember that? And we had to like kind of send the kids to the back because there's some language in Jeremiah chapter 3 talking about the sinfulness of Judah, of God's people. And so I'll keep it PG today, but simply he's talking about their spiritual adultery. And he had some, some names that he called them. Their spiritual adultery, how they had loved other lovers. Look at verse 4. Not only is his grace going to show up and surprise them and remind him that they are still loved despite their sin, but that their, his grace is actually going to restore them. Look at verse 4. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Do you see the restoration there? Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines, and you shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. He's saying here, uh, promising a few things here. Number one, that he'll make them pure again as a people. He's going to not only keep loving them despite their adultery, but he's going to purify them. What a gift that this is what God's grace does for us. 
Not only do we receive his love and can be forgiven, but we can be redeemed and restored by his grace. But there's more. He says he's also not just going to restore them, he's going to make them victorious. That's what he means here when he talks about the dance of the merrymaker. This is what would happen to celebrate a, a military victory. So he says, I'm going to deliver you. I'm not only going to save you and keep loving you, but I'm going to restore you and redeem you, and I'm going to deliver you from your enemy. And then, and then the third thing here, he says, I'm going to make you fruitful again. You will become fruitful in my sights. That's how much I love you. That's how powerful my grace is. That his people and his land that have been corrupted and destroyed by sin will one day bear fruit again. Do you see how surprising this word of grace would have been to devastated, suffering exiles who are experiencing the reality of their sin? And he doesn't tell us how he will do this. Remember, this is just the preview. This is just the movie trailer. He doesn't give the details but he is wooing his people back to himself. That's what God is doing with this word. Did you know that that's what grace does? Did you know that that's how grace works? That when we realize that the God of the Bible, the God of the universe is a gracious God, when we start to see his grace and imagine his grace, that it could be true for me, it could be true for us, it starts to woo us back. Can you imagine how these exiles probably would have been thinking things like, God, how could you have done this to us? God, where were you in my life? I thought you loved us. I thought you were a faithful God. And then all of a sudden they hear this word of God's surprising grace for them as sinners. And it changes the question, not from God, how could you? But God, could you really love us like that? God, could you really receive us back like that? God, could you really do these things for us? You see, this is what grace does when it shows up in our life. The grace of God, it surprises us. It draws us out of hiding. It woos us out of despair, out of fear, out of shame, out of guilt. Will you know that God's grace will show up for you when you turn to him? He is a gracious God. But there's more. Not only do we get the scene of God's surprising grace in this movie trailer, but we get a scene of God's securing grace. Look at verse 8 through 10. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the furthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it to the coastlands far away. So by the way, this grace isn't just for Israel. This grace is for the nations. He says, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. This is a beautiful text. There are some really specific images. There's some specific language here that might be confusing to us at first read, but let me just make it simple. Here's what God is saying about his securing grace. He's essentially saying, nothing will keep me from gathering people, from gathering people for myself. Nothing will keep me from receiving back and from securing my people, nothing. He says, not distance, not ailment. He says, not even a woman going into labor. And I've had three kids, and we've had a lot of plans that have gotten pushed back when it's time to go into labor. And he's saying, not even, this is the emphasis added here, nothing will keep me from gathering back my people. 
This is how powerful the grace of God is. He says, like a loving father, like a good shepherd, he will go to great lengths to rescue and to restore for himself a people. And this is a sinful bunch. I mean, what an amazing promise. What a gracious God. What grace for sinners. And I want you to know that God keeps this promise to Judah, right? Kind of the first act of the trilogy of grace here, this promise. God certainly does keep this promise for Judah. He does indeed gather Israel. We can read about this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And remember the the top line, bottom line thing from last week? In 538 BC, the Persian Empire defeats Babylon. And when when Persia overthrows Babylon and they become the new world power, um, Cyrus, King Cyrus, makes a decree in 538 BC to allow all of um, Israel to return to their land. Not only does he set them free and let them return to their land, but, he, uh, but then they're able to, to reestablish their way of life under the Persian Empire. And so they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the wall, they reestablish God's law in the land. God keeps this promise of grace in part one of the trilogy. But we know that this promise goes further still. Even in this text, we can hear the echoes and the faint promises of part two and part three in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hear the name of Jesus echoed in this text. God is indeed going to gather for himself a people from the furthest parts of the earth. And nothing can and nothing will keep God's people from his love. In fact, God tells us in Romans chapter 8, There's a similar text in Romans chapter 8 that echoes this promise in Jeremiah 31. Paul, in fact, is playing on this promise in Jeremiah 31 when he writes Romans 8, when he says that there's no tribulation or distress, no persecution or famine, no danger or sword. He leaves out the thing about the woman going into labor, but he says no height, nor depth, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You see, God is gathering for himself a people from all peoples and all places by his grace and for his glory. And if you are here this morning and you are in Christ Jesus by faith, I want you to know that you are secure in the grace of God. You are secure in the grace of God. Listen to what Dane Ortland writes in his book, Deeper. Listen to this. He says, what is most deeply true of us, okay? So truer than anything else in your life right now, whether you think this is true or not, what is most deeply true of you if you are in Christ Jesus is that you were secured in Christ before you even ever heard of Christ. What a powerful truth. What a powerful truth that no matter what you were facing today, no matter what doubts you have, no matter what season of life that you are in, Jesus is who he is. He is the good shepherd and he will keep you. The father has loved you with an everlasting love. He has sought you, he has found you, and he will not lose you. You are secure in the grace of of God. Would you receive that truth this morning? The grace of God is surprising. The grace of God is securing. And we're going to see in the text that the grace of God is all satisfying. We're going to see the satisfying grace of God for sinners. Look at verses 12 through 14, and then we'll look at verse 25. They shall call, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden. They shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning to joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with an abundance. 
And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Verse 25, for I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. What a promise. What a promise for suffering exiles, people living in a world that is not their home. What a promise that no matter what we have or what we don't have, that our soul can be satisfied in God's grace. He's saying here a day is coming when humanity will bear new fruit. He says that the days of thistles and thorns of sin will be replaced with new life and new fruit. A new garden will emerge. A new vine will emerge. It will be a watered garden, he says, that bears much fruit. And again, there's truth to this promise for the exiles. And and part one, when they do return to their land, when the temple is rebuilt, there is a season for them in which they recommit themselves, renew their commitment, renew their covenant to God, obey his law. It's It's a stark contrast from what we've read about in Jeremiah, where the kings have been wayward and wicked. They've been burning God's law. They've been worshiping the Baals. They've they've disregarded God and his law. As they return back after captivity and they rebuild the temple, there is a season where they do follow the law and they do flourish in God's ways, but it doesn't last. It's not sustaining. In fact, that's why in your Bible you have the minor prophets. (laughs) There's echoes here. This promise goes further. It goes beyond just Judah. Remember, this is a trilogy of grace, a preview for a trilogy of grace. In fact, when we read these verses, verses 12 through 14, verse 25, it's really hard as a New Testament, New Covenant Christian not to picture Jesus, isn't it? It's really really hard to read these verses and not see Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 as he stands before crowds, a bunch of burnt out and tired people, people who were burnt out and tired because they couldn't keep God's law and because of their failure to adhere to the law of God, had been ostracized, had been considered the outcasts, had been considered the sinners of the day gathered around Jesus, or the burnt out and tired people who had been trying in all of their willpower and strength on their own to keep God's law, and they had become religious and tired of their religiosity. These are the types of people, religious sinners and irreligious sinners, that Jesus gathers together. It's hard not to picture Jesus as we read these words when Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you Sinners, religious, irreligious, come to me, all you sinners who are what? Weary, burdened, tired, worn out by your sin, and your brokenness, and your shame. Weary and tired and worn out by the ways of this world that aren't fulfilling. Come to me, you who are, who are heavy laden, who have burdens upon your shoulders. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. You will find rest for your weary souls in me. Don't you hear? Don't you you see Act 2 of the Trilogy of Grace in these words? It's hard not to picture Jesus in John chapter 16 as he talks about the promised Holy Spirit whom he would send, who would fill the hearts of his disciples, the Holy Spirit who will turn sorrow into what? Sorrow into joy. He says that's the job of the Holy Spirit, the comforter that turns our sorrows into joy. That's what the Holy Spirit does for the people of Jesus, people who can suffer real sufferings, but yet, uh, but yet do it with flourishing and with joy because they have the living God within them. 
sustaining them, leading them, guiding them. It's hard not to picture Jesus in John 16 here where he says that the Spirit will come upon us, the Spirit of Jesus will live within us, who will be able to help us bear the fruit of the Spirit, who will be this watered garden, watered by the Spirit, the Spirit of truth bearing fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control in a world that is thorny and and full of thorns and thistles. Don't you see the good news here? The good news of God's satisfying grace. And I believe that there are some of us here this morning that came into this place this morning and and we are filling the thorns and thistles. Maybe your soul is just wound up by the cares of the world. Maybe you are tired and burdened. You are restless. Perhaps you were here this morning and if you're really honest with yourself, you can feel kind of the, 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 the heart, the restless heart striving and seeking, not satisfied, And I just want to invite you to hear the word of God this morning. I want to invite you to to turn to Jesus, to hear Jesus' invitation for you, to let your soul exhale in his grace. Will you allow the grace of Jesus, the satisfying grace of Jesus that's available to you today to replenish your tired and weary soul? He and he alone can satisfy the heart. Amen? There's one more scene. There's one more epic scene of grace in this movie trailer that I want us to see. We find it in verse 21 and 22, and then it's expounded upon in 31, 40. It's almost like we get like this kind of extended scene uh, in the preview at the end. Let's start in 21 and 22. So not only is God's grace surprising, shows up when we least expect it in our lives, not only is it securing, not only is it satisfying, but there's a promise of new covenant grace. Look at verse 21 and 22. Set up road markers for yourselves. Make yourselves guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. And return, O virgin Israel. Return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Let's stop for a minute. God is using some helpful images here to basically say, in light of the amazing grace that I'm offering you, despite your sin and your rebellion, even though you're in judgment, in light of this amazing grace that I'm promising to you, he's saying, come back to me. But but the way back to me, he's saying it's a new way. He's saying, I'm going to open a new road for sinful people to come back into a relationship with God. It's a new thing that I am doing. God is promising to do a new work And the the phrase at the end of verse 22 is meant to add emphasis. Look back at that at the end of 22. He says, for the Lord has created a new thing, this phrase, a woman encircles a man. Now, there's a lot of debate about what this means. Um, There's some scholars that say that maybe it's this image of Jesus. It's this kind of whisper of Jesus, that the baby who would be in the womb of a woman, a woman would encircle a man. There's other scholars that say, no, that's reading too much in the text. It means that the, that the strong, I'm sorry, that the weak will be raised up over the strong. And there's some scholars that basically just say it's like one of those sayings like, yeah, when a pig's fly, you know, like, I, listen, don't, I'm, feminists, don't come at me. I'm not sure. But he's like, it's kind of what he's saying, like, eh, when a woman encircles a man, God will do a new thing. I don't really know. That's not the point. The point is that that phrase is meant to add emphasis to this reality that God is saying, I'm going to do a new thing in the earth. There's a new way that's coming, a new promise, and it's going to be not a way of law and temple, but a way of grace, a way of grace. Look at verse 31, 
through 40. I want to close with this. He starts to unpack this new thing even more, and it's absolutely amazing. Verse 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, God does, again, this is a preview for a trilogy. God does renew his covenant with Judah when they return to the land after their exile. But this is clear that that he's talking about not a renewal of the old covenant. He's talking about a whole new thing that God is going to establish. A new way for human beings to relate to the God of the universe. Look at verse 32. He makes it clear. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So not like the first covenant. Not like the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their heart. I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Listen, hear me. Jeremiah, when he receives this word, would have had absolutely no framework for what God just told him. It's like when I meet some of you who work in the tech sector, and I ask you for the first day, hey, what do you do? And you tell me what you do. And I just have no idea. I'm just like, no framework for what you do. And I just kind of, okay, yep, sounds interesting. And then we start talking about other things. He would have had absolutely no framework for what God just said to him right here. What? Write the law on their hearts? What? The law is on tablets and scrolls. People are going to know God. They're going to be able to know God without the prophets and without the customs and the religious traditions of Israel and the work that we do in the... People are going to know God apart from all of that. What? He would have had no framework for this. This is an amazing promise. How could the law be written on hearts? How could people know God? They would, have made, they, they would have no way to make sense of this, but only in the mind of a gracious God. How does this make sense? It only makes sense in the mind of a gracious God who, before the foundations of the earth, had set forth a plan to redeem a sinful and broken world by revealing the love of the Father to the world through the person and work of the Son. This is the only way to make sense of this promise, that God had actually planned something and promised something even before Judah and before their rebellion. This is a trilogy of grace. You see this new covenant of grace that he's promising here, Jesus tells us would be a new covenant of his blood, that through his atoning death, him, the God-man, suffering and dying, sins would be forgiven. They would be remembered no more. Through him giving of his own spirit, hearts would be changed. People could be transformed from the inside out and be made into new creations. And this new covenant of grace, it would be something that anyone and everyone could get in on. People from the furthest parts of the earth declare it to the coastlands because this is for Jew and Gentile. 
this new covenant of grace. It's for rich or poor. It's for religious, religious or irreligious. It doesn't matter how you are. It doesn't matter who you are. The grace of God made available in Jesus Christ, it is for you today. Jesus is risen. Jesus is reigning. Jesus stands ready to surprise you with his grace this morning. If you need to be reminded that you are lovable and fully loved in him this morning, no matter who you are or what you've done, he will surprise you with his grace today. He will secure you with his grace. He will satisfy you with his grace. Turn to him today. In fact, in a moment, we're going to turn to him together. We're going to celebrate the grace that he offers us together. We're going to take communion and celebrate the new covenant of his grace. We're going to praise him. We're going to respond to his word. But before we do, I want to finish with verses 38 through 40. This text that we're about to read is amazing. It just, you're watching the preview and you don't really have any idea what this scene is about. You just know this scene is awesome, you know? And you're like, I got to go see that movie because that thing in the preview, I don't understand it, but that is epic. That's what this is. Look at verse 38 through 40. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord, from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate. The measuring line shall go out farther, straighter to the hill Gareb, and shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes, and all the fields as far as the brook of Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked or overthrown anymore. Listen, there is so much meat on this bone right here. I simply don't have time to unpack it, but I want to encourage you to study this with your gospel community this week. Talk about this when you meet with your gospel community. Let me just summarize it as we close. This is the promise of grace, the third act of grace in the trilogy right here. This is what he's saying. There is a new city that is coming. There is a new Jerusalem that is coming that will come in the future, a new reality, a new place to live, a new world to call your home. And he says it will come from the highest point. It will come down from above, from the highest point, the Tower of Hanel, and it will go further and straighter and wider than the old Jerusalem. And in it, there will be no more death, no more ashes, no more mourning, no more suffering, no more pain or tears. And it will never be destroyed. The Lord will reign in this city for all eternity and you will be his people. What a day that will be. What a promise of grace. What grace to be revealed. What grace available to you and me in the kindness of of our God and our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we've looked at your word over the last few months, we've seen that sin is serious. We've seen that you are holy and mighty. And today we receive from you that you are gracious and kind. You are abounding in steadfast love. You stand ready to secure sinners you stand ready to receive sinners. You stand ready to surprise sinners and satisfy sinners and forgive sinners by the new covenant of your blood in Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for the grace that is available to us today. May we not miss it this morning, but would we receive it? Would we drink deep from it? Would we be transformed from one degree of glory to the next today? God, we love you. We honor you. We praise you. We respond to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.